I've seen books describe business as war, with companies vying for domination and founders running around with their armour on. The armour is there to protect them during the battle and to hide their weaknesses. However, this armour is also restricting. It limits our movement and our ability to connect with others. In this episode of the podcast, Anya Pierce, positive psychology educator and head of positive psychology at the Museum of Happiness, joins us in a conversation about putting the armour down. Too many of us are brought up believing that being hyper-independent is how we achieve success. But building a business is tough. There are so many challenges that we face, both external and internal. And it's the internal challenges that are usually the most limiting. Anya shares a couple of models of performance that I think speak to where many of our community are at. She says performance can be either described as capacity plus information, that is, the more we know, the better we do, or performance equals capacity minus interference, that is, our own limiting beliefs and biases are the things that actually get in the way. The latter model resonates most with me. I don't need to know more, I just need to be more happy not knowing and learn how to collaborate more effectively. Listen to Anya share her wisdom and we hope it will help you become more aware of your feelings in the moment, be more kind to yourself and to start reaching out to others who can help. Where I am at the moment is an interesting question because there's a duality to my experience. On the one hand, I'm head of positive psychology at the Museum of Happiness. Go check it out, Pete. I'm just entering the third year of my master's in an MSc in applied positive psychology. I get asked to do things like this, and I love having these kinds of exploratory, playful conversations about essentially the nature of being human. And on the other flip side of that, what's led into this point is On the 20th of February, 2006, I collapsed and I was subsequently diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome, which drastically affects my mobility, my stamina. I use a walking stick. I have a wheelchair in the back of my car. Now, when I talk about kindness and vulnerability, I'm at the sharp end of it by which I mean that I often, I'm going to go to Blanche Dubois in the film and the play, A Streetcar Named Desire. Check it out. It's an oldie. Talks about having to rely on the kindness of strangers. I have a body which fails when I go out in public. And so for me, receiving help from others can be an offer from a complete stranger to carry me up a set of stairs. So there's a very tactile quality when we talk about kindness. And it is absolutely fair. How can we be kinder to all those we encounter, be it directly or indirectly, through random acts of kindness, through sending messages, whatever. And I'm a huge advocate for self-compassion, actually directing kindness to ourselves you know but this is the vulnerable aspect and most I think most vulnerable thing is to receive help and support and yes it's been it's almost 16 years since I've been on this journey of transforming my curiosity into why people do the things they do into why I do the things I do and then sending it back out from my path you this idea of receiving the kindness of strangers. I 
for whatever reason, there's my mind is particularly in business, but I think also generally in the world, we, we feel like, I feel there's like a transactional approach to relationships a lot. Is you scratch my back, I scratch yours, or there's the, if I do, if I help someone else, and maybe this is just me, and I have a really uh, cynical view of the world, but there is this feeling like uh, there needs to be like a, an exchange. Yeah. And so I, I, if I get help from someone else, I might need, I might owe them. And that, how that can stop people in a certain way from even asking for help, because maybe there's this internal narrative. I don't know if this is something you come across because yeah, I, I feel like there's something here and there's no, some level, there's no option but to ask for help, but how that can stop other people from doing that. I think you're touching in on a few things there. There's, my brain is fizzing in two different directions. I'll see if I can bring it down. One of them is a term that Brene Brown uses called chandeliering, where we feel pain, but we disguise it. But if someone taps into it, it is off the charts. And I think for a lot of us, this is why the armor comes on, because there is something inside us which, you know, if another person touches, there are certain things for me, if we discuss now, I'm going to be diving behind my laptop to grab a tissue because they are still live for me. They remain wounds and are yet to be transformed through time into scars. But also this thing of fearing being indebted to someone. For me, one of the challenges and insights, this two sides of the same coin, has been, because I would be very self-conscious about that, there is a term in Gabor Mate's book, when the body says no, of compensatory hyper-independence, where we are. I, 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 share, I, I know, it's, I reckon we put that on a t-shirt, people. Whereas we become so independent to compensate we actually block people out. And I know for myself, the more that I can flip it around and actually think, okay, so if someone asks me for help, how do I feel? And I tend to be one of the go-to people in my circles. And I always feel, oh, well, you've trusted me. You've let me in. And certainly in the positions I've been in, my relationship to my asking and my vulnerability then influences the relationship other people have with it. And so if I feel really shitty and apologetic and like I'm a burden, and trust me, it's taken me about 10 years to be able to say that the word burden without bursting into tears. Oh, okay, maybe not 10 years. Then I kick, when, I, when I have that energy with someone, they can pick it up. And it makes them feel awkward. Whereas if I go, I'm a whole being, you're a whole being, we all need to, you know, I help you, you help me because of we're human rather than creating debt, which then leaves us with this fear of how will this be paid? How can I repay this? It becomes like a mental thing, an unfinished loop which hangs in our minds. And we are already so overwhelmed. We have, I, I always think of it in this way, we have like anxiety and depression, anxiety just for the moment. You know, what used to be clinically diagnosable is now pretty much normal. 
And I suspect that most people have what I would call a low level of emotional inflammation. And because of all these different things that aren't settled and don't have space to be settled. Something that really struck me, A, because there's a lot of syllables in it, but B, it it resonated with how I I was at school, this compensatory hyper-independence. There was something around, like, I needed to work things out on my own. And I I didn't want help. I didn't want to be seen as needing help. And on one level, I, I knew I could work it out, but at the same time, it felt like I was doing it for another reason. No, I was trying to show that independence because of, I was compensating for something else. That's what that's what triggered in my head, and then how that kind of has trickled into how I how it trickled into how I thought you needed to be at work, and how I thought business works. And particularly when I think about the people we glorify in business, and particularly in the startup world, these people who are inspirational founders who just did it by pulling out their bootstraps and just making make everything happen because of them and their genius. Yeah. And how, how actually it really doesn't work like that. In reality, <laughs> they're amazing stories, but every visionary, every founder, every person who's made any kind of success in business has done it by either standing on the shoulders of giants or with the support and care of someone in their lives or in their world. And I feel that this whole... There's a narrative here, it feels that isn't spoken enough about, particularly in this age where no one person can have an answer to lots of the problems we're trying to fix. It's interesting when you talk back about being at school. I was, I picked up my copy of Will Stores, The Science of Storytelling again last night, because there was, in anticipation of this conversation, there was a section in it where he talks about up until our teenage years, we are building in our minds and building a model of the world, how the world works. And then after teenage, we go from being teenagers, we go from model builders to model defenders. And so we create a model of the world and how it looks and how it works. And then we defend that by through our cognitive biases, through accepting certain things and dispensing certain things. And it takes me into this idea, we've called this about business doesn't have to be a battle, dropping the armor. I always think about, I'm a fan of acceptance and commitment training. And, you know, this idea of wake up, loosen up and step up. So wake up, what you experience, loosen up. I'm going to explain in a minute. And step up is actually taking action aligned with our values. And I think particularly with the with the cohort here, that's something which I would imagine a lot of people want to do. But the loosen up part is about acceptance and letting go. And I always think after our initial conversation for this, there are so many things that we push away and it becomes like a shield. And these things we push away can be feelings, experiences, thoughts, and if you imagine that I was holding my hand up and pushing it far away, try it at home, people. This is a multi, you know, live studio audience and shit. Put your hand, put your left hand up and put it as far away as you can. I said, you're bothered to see it here because the limitations of the screen and stuff. And you can probably do it for a minute or two. But imagine doing that, how uncomfortable that will get after a while. 
And imagine trying to do that for an hour. And Carlos does like Kung Fu and stuff, and he's like giving up. So really, you know. And so it's very exhausting putting all that energy into pushing those things away, pushing away the need for other people. And what's what? So we've got the shield, but what's in our other hand? And I was thinking, you know, take your right hand and grasp it. And imagine having that closed fist again all day and holding it really tightly. These are the things we hold on to, the beliefs. I have to defend from this. I have to defend from letting people know that I'm struggling because I'm holding on to the belief that if they find out, they'll realize I'm an imposter. They'll realize that I don't know what I'm doing. They will discover that I'm not enough. And it is like going into battle with your shield, all the things you're pushing away, and your sword, all these things which you, all these beliefs which you cut through life, and you discern, okay, this is right, this is wrong, according to this. But if your hand's pushing out that way, and you've got this other one gripped, you're not able to leave your hands open to receive, just on a, on a basic kind of like metaphor level right now. And receiving can feel vulnerable because it's unpredictable. We fear being judged. One of the things I've had to get over is this thing of, I, I actually modeled it this morning with you, Carlos. I tuned into how I was feeling and recognized that I actually needed some support around doing this call. And so I sent Carlos a message saying, hi, I'm a little bit on the neurodiverse side, a little bit of stuff going on, people. I would love what helps me is knowing how we start and having a call afterwards just to help downregulate my nervous system. And even I knowing all this was, oh, and what if Carlos goes, well, that's a bit weird. <laughs> That's a bit, I mean, it was, it's like, that's a bit needy. And it ties in because I picked up on that compensatory hyper-independence because, honey, it's on a t-shirt. I'll get you one. Hun I've got three hanging up in my wardrobe already. You know, <laughs> trying to let go of the belief that if I ask for help, I'm a burden and protecting myself from the feeling of rejection. Something was bringing up for me around imposter syndrome. And, and something that comes up a lot in, in, within our community, particularly on our programs. And I'm linking it to this on one hand, not knowing, not having answers, but also always having an intention. So, you know, when we started off the happy startup school, we had no idea exactly the exact pathway or skills in order to help people build businesses that align with who they really are. We, we didn't really have all any answers as such. We, we had an intention, we had a belief, we had a feeling, but I feel it's that not knowing the answers beforehand is the biggest challenge for a lot of people who want to start things. I think back to when we started, I, I think despite not knowing the answers, I do feel like we had some confidence in what we were saying and also a, a confidence in knowing who we were talking to and who we weren't talking to. So maybe there's something there about was it would have been easy to be attracted or to lose that heart very early on if we talked to the wrong people. I think knowing who we wanted to listen to was super important, I think, in terms of how we started sharing those ideas at the beginning. And so we see this a lot with people who are starting out as they've got this little bud of an idea and they're trying to grow it. 
And like a little plant, if it's given the wrong water or the wrong food, it's going to either live or die, depending on that. And so <clears throat> understanding who you want to listen to and and how you want to share those ideas at the start, I think it's so important. Rather than just, here's my passion, here's my life's work, do you like it? You know, give me some feedback. And, and often that can be a really dangerous thing to ask for when it's to the wrong people in the wrong setting. So, yeah, I think there's something about vulnerability within a bubble that's safe enough without being so safe that you get just nice things being said because people think that's what you what you want to hear. Yeah, it's a delicate thing, isn't it? And I think for me, just hearing that is just tying this in my head to this idea of inic-critic, imperfect starts. Because it's one of the things that we we work a lot on within our programs and the communities, like the imperfect start. You don't necessarily know all the answers. You don't have the 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 final product ready to go, but you need to make a move. And how that links to this idea of just being kind to yourself, but then also links to be kind to others and being accepting kindness from others. So that's the connection I was trying to see if there was one here. And and you, you have this idea about three ways of kindness, Anya. I don't know if there is something here that could help with someone who wants to make something happen in the world, but for some reason they're stopping from doing that. And is there a way to link into this idea of kindness? So a couple of things come up for me. And I think it's worth unpacking this idea of being kind to ourselves and I'm a big fan of Kristin Neff's work and selfcompassion.org I think it is and she talks about there being three components to it mindfulness self-kindness and common humanity and so the mindfulness aspect is because we can often shield ourselves from the thought, the feeling that we are overwhelmed and we need help. And actually, I think Brene Brown talks about it in Daring Greatly, the epidemic of busyness. Mm. And I think it can be really tempting at the start of an enterprise to overinvest in the minute details because they are the things you feel you can control versus taking that first step towards an experience which is yet unknown. And so there's just like the mindfulness aspect. As soon as you get into the mindfulness of just noticing your experience, that automatically gives you choicefulness. You're no longer being driven. You can go, okay, so I have options here. The gap between the stimulus and the response. The self-kindness aspect is about recognizing that we can resource ourselves and resourcing ourselves often involves other people in polyvagal theory by Stephen Porges basically is this idea that we have evolved to regulate each other's nervous systems so when I am this is why I asked Carlos to do a call after this to help I want to piggyback on his nervous system very cheekily, without asking, frankly, it's the first he's heard of this, to piggyback on his nervous system to help me regulate mine. You know, and it's this, the self-kindness aspect. I've also noticed that the more that I model it, the more it gives permission to other people to do the same. 
And one of the ways around it is building up our resourcefulness so that we can allow ourselves and be in the best state possible for the decisions that will inevitably come so we are able to respond rather than react. But the final piece is the common humanity. And I've actually been experiencing it with another member of the community, Matthew Bellringer, around neurodiversity. By sharing our experiences, two things happen. One, we say implicitly, I trust you. And I think being trusted and feeling trusted is a rare and beautiful treasure. And the other is... And it can be quite a nervous system response. I thought it was just me. And and we may not be able to identify with the top details. You know, I would suspect that there are very few people who have experienced being in St. Albans train station, having a gentleman who was a school outfitter offer to carry me up a set of stairs because I, my, I, my leg stopped functioning. I suspect that's not, that particular detail is possibly just me, quite happily. But when we dive deeper, we can find things we have in common. These things of fearing rejection, fearing not being loved, fearing having our worst fears confirmed by others, essentially. That's where it comes, that's kind of what can stop us and particularly and at the start of an enterprise making these small buds of ideas grow it's this thing of the i suspect in most founders heads is the fear or the story or the voice saying this isn't going to work and trying to do all of this preparation to fight it and, and i think i'm sleeping slightly but There are two models of performance, which I love. One is the standard one. So performance equals capacity plus information. So if you know better, you do better. And it's really relevant. I do a lot of psychoeducation right now. When I say right now, probably right now. But the model I love is performance equals capacity minus interference. And interference is very often our own insecure thinking, the thoughts and the stuff we grip onto that says, I just need to do this before I'm ready. Then it will be perfect. Then it will be a success rather than thinking of it as an, I think it's Pema Chodron's start of one of her books. She talks about her tutor saying, live your life like an experiment and self-kindness and accepting kindness from others allows us to be in that really that liminal space for experimentation. If you think everything is life or death, you're not going to experiment with it. Am I going to experiment with whether I survive if I jump, if the question is jump off a 10 story building? I'm going to go, I think I've got, I don't want to experiment with that one. Not without some apparatus, perhaps. But if it's, so it's just changing the framing sometimes to just kind of go, will I survive if I put something out and it's not quite right yet or can i to nick that nlp phrase there is no failure only feedback can i discover at worst another way not to do it the phrase that jumped out at me all through that was this idea of common humanity and for whatever reason i thought of networking events that lawrence and i would go to and 
feeling like I don't feel a common humanity in this place. Not that I'm <laughs> beings, but just I didn't feel like I could talk about. Well, I didn't feel like I, could, I was talking the same language, and I felt like the the reason people were here was not the same reason I was here. And I think of the difference between that and being at somewhere like where we are at summer camp, where there was no, I don't feel any fear about any kind of conversation I'm having there. I don't feel like any time I'm going to have a conversation, someone's going to give me their business card or try to sell <laughs> me something. There's an opportunity to actually say something like you just said, and then realize I'm not the only one. Hmm. Or that to be received in a way that like, oh, it's okay for me to think like this. And it links back, I think, for me to this whole idea of whether it's imposter syndrome or needing to feel like you, needing for other for you to feel like other people think you have your shit together. I, you, you know the answers because it's professional. You, know, you have to be professional. You need to know exactly what you're doing all the time. I was going to do a bit of a little bit of the model at the, at, at the beginning of this, this idea we, we grip onto these beliefs as a society that I, I need to be a certain way. I need to show up in a certain manner. I need to get, have my shit together. Otherwise I'm not adulting properly. I still, I know, I describe myself as three toddlers in a raincoat pretending to be an adult. And every now and again, the ones at the bottom kind of like peep out. And it's kind of like, guys, shut up. It's the water we're swimming in. And I think coming back to the thing of mindfulness, just recognizing this is the water. Okay. And because I've been in it so long, I've swallowed some of it is in my body now. I've internalized it. Okay. And having these conversations, you know, as in, it, it is my prayer, my fervent hope to attend summer camp next, next year. You will. You know, <laughs> you will. We'll be carrying you across the threshold. In the manner to which I deserve. But, you know, actually having priming the palm, like that choicefulness thing. A lot of us don't realize we have choice. I remember sitting next door to a guy at an event and he was talking about, the thing he'd have attended the previous evening. And he said to me, now, I'm 37 years of age. And last night was the first time someone told me that I could tell that critical, horrible voice in my head to bugger off. Hadn't occurred, hadn't occurred. I think that captures a lot of this, that how do we tell that critical voice in our heads to bugger off? Because it, it, I believe for a lot of people, it's quite a loud voice and it, it dominates Everything we try and do or we try and birth in terms of ideas and even trying to be creative. I think that's a big challenge I've found. Like, is this, is this okay so will people like it rather than something else? How do I, how does that, how do we make these things or how do we birth ideas that isn't, aren't so dependent on whether someone will accept it or not? Oh, so many directions to go in with this. To put my psychoeducator hat on briefly for a moment we our brains have been designed to keep us safe not make us happy and our inner critic has our best interests at heart it just needs to go on some effing training about non-violent communication because what it's trying to do is keep us safe and particularly it's really interesting you say that about sending stuff in the world and will people like it 
It wants to keep us safe from social rejection and having the social rejection part, affirming that at some level we are not enough, we are not lovable, we are broken, etc., etc., etc. You know, the various flavors of the same product there. And part of it is recognizing that we are not our thinking. We are the whole sky. Everything else is just weather. And having these critical thoughts are just one of, they're the storm system in our larger ecosystem. But there is always the inspiration. There's always the sunshine, always the creativity, always the aliveness, the intuitiveness behind whatever clouds that we create through our, through our thinking, through creating mental smog. So we, first of all, knowing that it has a job, so we can thank it. It's not us, it's part of us. And I mentioned acceptance and commitment training at the beginning, this idea of our values and making actions in, a, in alignment with those. Very often we are drawn by this aliveness, the creativity that wants to speak through us, that wants to come through us. You used the word birthing earlier on. We, we are the vessels, the midwives or whatever of something that sometimes wants to come through us. And again, it comes back to those different models of performance, dropping the interference and on a practical level. Can I do an exercise? Go ahead. Okay. So live studio audience, play along at home. Okay. So I haven't actually rehearsed this one. I probably should have done, but I'm going to introduce you to something called dropping anchor and it's with an acronym of ACE, A-C-E. And so if you want to think about it, you'll have this as an ACE up your sleeve anytime you need it. I know. So bring to mind, and either can close your eyes, obviously if you're listening in the car and driving, perhaps don't do this bit, but close your eyes and just tune into a challenge or a difficulty you have it's something that's more akin to a pebble in your shoe rather than a major life crisis at the moment purely because this is going to be a brief exercise and I'm not with you to intervene and so it could be something that's coming up in the moment something that's habitual but just check in and see and feel where is it in your body right now? So if you had to give it a label, what kind of emotion would you have? Emotional label. Even just kind of that tuning into the sensation. And there may well be images, thoughts, memories, conversations tied in with this. Certain stories that your mind is telling you. And just, we're just acknowledging that this is here. And then the C, come back into your body. And so just push your feet down into the floor and maybe move your arms, move your body and just recognize, you know, there's this feeling, this belief, this sensation. And there's a body around it. There's some, you can still have choice. You can still move. And then if you've lowered your gaze or closed your eyes to tune into the sensation, actually open your eyes and engage with the world. Count in your head five different things that you can see. I can see um, a blanket, a drink, a pen, a hair clip, a lamp. 
and then just tune in to what you can hear. Perhaps the sound of your laptop or people outside, the, the water in your central heating, the sound of my voice, anything you can smell. And perhaps the sensation of, you know, sitting on the surface that you're on. And then take yourself back into the thought, feeling, experience that you were having, going back into acknowledging it. You know, we're not trying to change it. We're just providing a larger container for it. And so just touching in with that as well. And then again, coming back into our body, kind of like moving it around, perhaps shimmying your shoulders or rolling them back and forth, perhaps waggling your fingers or your toes. And so there's this feeling, this emotion, this experience. There's also this body, this container for it. And then engaging with the world, opening your eyes again. And again, you look at, I can see through my reading glasses, a very squinting, some post-it notes, a very large green plant, a television set, a window, a board with more post-it notes, sensing a theme here. And just coming back to me now with this, my voice and these other sounds and sensations around you. And so just bringing this to a close now, you know, this is called dropping anchor and going through the three cycles. It allows us to be with what's coming up for us. To also recognize that it's not just that because we can get so narrowed in and focused. You know, I can believe that I'm going to be terrible at something and I can still go ahead and do it. My body, I can still invite my body to move forward because I, just because I have that thought. Again, very practical example. There are times when like people say, do you think you can walk that? And I go, I have no idea. Let's find out. You know, and so I have a lot of thinking of, oh, this is going to be painful. I'm going to pay for this tomorrow. I can't do it. And I can go, yes, and I'm going to, I'm going to experiment. I've always got that choicefulness. So there's a container, always a container for my thoughts, my experience. And then there's a larger container. And even by, you know, I said, you know, count five things that takes us from the emotional part of the brain, the limbic brain into the executive centers. So that also automatically helps to downregulate our nervous system and moves us into a state of more resourcefulness. And we're not we're not pushing away the experience. We're not gripping onto beliefs that, oh, I should do something different. We're kind of like going, okay, my hand is open to this. I don't particularly want it in my hand, but I can put my other hand here. I've got more capacity. I can expand my more capacity, more capacity. So that the in the end, just thinking of something from Tara Brack and Radical Acceptance, wonderful book for this inner critic work. If we have a drop of ink in a very small glass, it makes all the water black. But if we tip that same glass into an ocean, it dissipates because there is so much more capacity to dissipate and absorb it. And I think a lot of it is, in my humble opinion, and quoting from, I can quote from several people if you like, but in my humble opinion, it is this question of expanding and part of being in community is, is, is expanding ourself, 
with selves. Amen. <laughs> I think we need a whole day of Anya. I think what the thing that really stood out for me was what you when you said, I've no idea, but let's find out. And just that just captured just the essence of not needing to know, but not being scared of what it might turn out to be. Actually, to flip it, not from not being scared to trusting that I could handle whatever would come up. Mm, yeah. I'm thinking of the, the push-pull thing. Not being scared is from a place of deficit, of fear. Whereas, like, this, and again, it comes through looking after myself and, and knowing that I have some limits and sometimes I'll just give them a little bit of a shove just to, yeah, yeah, see, that's right enough. And also knowing that I've sat on the street curb in San Francisco before now because my legs have given up. And I've just sat there and gone, yeah, they'll recharge eventually. Okay. The world looks better from down here. Woo! I really appreciate that. The, the flipping, like you said, there's a reason why... You- uh, we got you on here. Apparently so. I didn't even know this, but yeah, it's <laughs> on, on a, no, this has been an experiment. And each time I do a talk, it's an experiment because I don't know what it is that I do. And it's only by having these conversations that I play around and go, apparently I talk about this. Uh, <laughs> I have discovered a lot more about what you do, but not even what you do. I think it's less about what you do. It's less, it's more about, I can see you offering, particularly for people who are essentially shifting up to the next level and you're talking about performance being capacity plus information or capability plus information i think that's an early stage we are we have abilities to do things we just don't know how to do them but i think you get to a stage in running a business in being a leader in being a professional where it's no longer about information you have all the information you need you have all the capability you need it's just you getting in your own way and i think what you can do is lift that lid off many people's lives of actually there is, like you said, they're holding onto something, they're pushing something away, and they don't even realize it. And that is what the armor is about. And that is where this belief of life or business being a struggle, a battle, something that we need to be hard-nosed about, something that we need to be cold and calculating about, when in fact, actually, there's another way. I was going to say the metaphors we use shape the experience we have. Exactly. And this conversation has been so rich of more (laughs) useful, I would say, or more beneficial, more easeful metaphors than some of the metaphors that I was brought up when it came to work and business and life. And not criticizing those because they were born from a different place in history and a different place in, in people's lives. But we are, I believe, living in such a world of abundance materially, but a deficit or a, a lack of scarcity spiritually, emotionally, like you said, in terms of this, even this low-level anxiety that everyone is feeling. And that's valuable to be able to deal with that and to be able to understand how that works. And so while you have this encyclopedic knowledge and you have <laughs> skills and the presence to, to work with that information, the value you bring is allowing people to actually flip this ability or this, this state of mind that they may be in and how that can then benefit their life, personal lives, their professional lives, all of this stuff. And I am conscious that I haven't let Lawrence get a word in edgeways, but I do want to quickly say just the Marshall Goldsmith quote 
What got you here won't get you there. Yes. Mm. We've got a couple of questions, haven't we? We've got Sophie's one and Chris's one. So how do I capture and recall my encyclopedic knowledge? And how does it serve you? Well, that's the next, that's the next bit. (laughs) Yeah, that's like the next part. So I'm I'm going to, I'm being very conscientious. I'm going through it bit by bit and building as we go. And so how do I capture and recall it? I'm socially isolated. So I read a lot. I also have chronic fatigue. So I sleep a lot. And research has shown that sleeping helps to consolidate memories. Also, one of my special gifts is connecting things. That's my version of creativity. I connect ideas together. And so I already have, a, if I have a framework, I have a framework of things. And so I'm like a magpie. And I'm forever creating a mosaic. Every now and again, I step back and go, ooh, I see, I'm starting to see a picture here. And then I go, ooh, new shiny thing. And so it goes under there and stuff. How does it serve me? It serves me in two ways. One, it helps me to have a gentler experience with myself because the more I study, the more I read about this guest house of being human, to quote Rumi. So it serves me by actually helping me to feel less alone because my circumstances mean that generally speaking, my experience is of aloneness. And it also serves me when I do have conversations with people because I am then able to say with some authenticity, dual level authenticity, both lived and other people's backed up, you are not alone. Is it armor or asset? It depends on what time of day you catch me and the context. Generally speaking, it's an asset. It allows me to... Because I'm more able to embrace more aspects of myself, I'm more able to embrace aspects of other people, particularly those aspects which they feel uncomfortable or shameful about. I can just go, yeah, no, you're normal. That's true. And sometimes it's armor. You know, one of the things that, bless him, Carlos, gently reminded me of is I'm very good at going into models. I can very much go into my head and talk about various things like that. And and there are times when, yes, I will use that as a defense mechanism, being being the smartest person in the room. And it sucks when I do that, frankly. I know I, when I tune into it, I go, okay, I'm feeling insecure. The locus of my self-esteem is out external rather than internal. So yeah, I hope that answers, mm-hmm. answers your question, Chris. They say if you um, want to look smart in the meeting, just draw a Venn diagram. So it sounds like a similar model. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the last one from Sophie then. What are your views on gut feeling? Just, just bearing in mind that I could talk about any of this for a long time. I would say that gut feelings are wonderful. And also there's something from, which I, from the addiction community, which is HALT. Before you make a decision, check, are you hungry, angry? lonely or tired if you make I, I did a whole if you go onto my website I think there's a link to the creators club talk I did which is about creative decision making and what people are often challenged about by gut feelings is deciphering whether they are wisdom or fear and very often our level of resourceness you know, and literally, I think Lisa Feldman Barrett, How Emotions Are Made, 
talks about this idea of a body budget. And so honestly, if you are feeling, as I said, this low-level chronic anxiety, that's going to be depleting. If you're hungry, if you're, if something's pissing you off, if, you know, you're lonely, which is, this is in the context of you're talking about this in the context of community, not feeling connected to others. And if we're tired, we are more likely to A, have conflicting messages coming up. I want to do this, but I want to do, but, and so gut feelings are brilliant. We actually have neurons in both our hearts and our brains for cognition. What the challenge is building a relationship with that gut feeling. And very often it, it's, it could be quite subtle. It's, huh, yeah, or a, nah, rather than this download from God, you know. And very often there's a great thing I picked up, credit where credit is due, the two models of performance are from Michael Neal. So is this. I forget which book he talks about it in, but this idea of more full stops, fewer commas. And, you know, it's that I know I'd quite like to start a business doing this, but I'm worried about this. And then this one might happen. And this is like bringing it down. I'd like to start a business full stop and just tuning into the gut reaction. But I do think it is about developing a relationship with the gut. Sophie's saying, I tend to view them as wisdom and we all have access to it. Again, it's the level of interference we have to it. Believing that these gut feelings need to tell us a certain thing or appear in a certain way. Or even that if we follow that instinct, everything will turn out beautifully. It may not. It's all about just what's tuning into the very next step, the very next action, taking a step and going, okay, warmer or colder? warmer or colder what's coming up for me now and giving ourselves permission to put down the armor and go sometimes yeah i'm standing here i don't know how i got to this place right now might be hard might, might be talking about myself right now don't know how i got here shit who else is here and sometimes you know tuning into other people's gut wisdom and Really allowing ourselves to recognize that however alone we may feel in a particular experience, we are part of something bigger always. It's triple amen. <laughs> Thanks very much, Anya. I think for me, it's, I think Chris summed it up. Well, this was you. This is your time. This is our opportunity to get to know you more, for others to get to know you more. So I'm seeing through the models, through the, recommendations and just yeah, getting to feel more of your I need them and and actually think thinking that you need your own platform for this I'm just I'm thinking about starting all sorts of ways that we could get to experience more of your work and, and just these conversations and your wisdom really because it's one thing that comes through the comments is yeah how much you have to offer I'm sure we'll all be quoting you after this not not quoting others so thank you totally agree to steal your other metaphor I think this is a a glass of Anya that is only a <laughs> fraction of the ocean of Anya that we could experience. <laughs> I thought you were going to say the, the pub of Anya. <laughs> three pints of Anya, please. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I, like Lauren said, you will be at summer camp by hook or by yeah. We will get you there. And yeah. I think there's going to be something, I feel a space, an Anya-shaped space that needs to be filled at summer camp. 
Thank you for listening to our Happy Entrepreneur podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud, or wherever you found this podcast episode. And if you'd like to learn more about creating a new path for your work and business, a path that feels more meaningful, more purposeful, and more aligned to who you really are, then sign up to our newsletter on our website, thehappystartupschool.com, and you'll receive little nuggets of wisdom, stories of experienced entrepreneurs following this more purposeful path, and also a little bit of uh, wittering from myself and Lawrence and other useful bits of information and content to keep you inspired, keep you engaged, and keep you happy. Mm-hmm.